Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, if you have the Bible app on your phone or tablet or in our church app, there is a Bible app on the home tab that you can follow along with us. We are continuing our study through the book of Acts, and today we're going to be finishing a two-part look at the convening of the council, which we're covering in Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 22. And in part two today, we're going to be studying verses 12 through 22. And just for some context, in the first part of chapter 15, we saw this situation arise where these false brethren, as Paul called them in his letter to the Galatians, they they came from Jerusalem up about 300 miles north to Syrian Antioch. And they taught the believers there that unless they were circumcised according to the custom of Moses... They could not be saved. These people had heard about Jesus. What they had heard was, you need to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. There there would have definitely been an element of repentance in that message because that was something that had been preached uh, by Jesus. It had been modeled by Jesus. It had been preached even on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. It had been preached all along that people would turn from their sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. That's what would save them. That's what they had heard. And now there's this heavy weight of burden that's been placed by these false brethren who came and said, that's actually not enough. It sounds like enough. Jesus is great, and you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. These Gentile believers, that would, was not a part of their culture or customs. Because of this, Paul and Barnabas, they travel those 300-some miles to Jerusalem to bring this matter to the church leaders there so that they could have a unified response and stance taken against this false gospel because that's what it was. It's a false gospel. It's a perversion of the true gospel. We looked at that two weeks ago. Then last week in verses 6 through 11, we saw Peter stand up and begin to make his appeal to the council of church leaders that had convened there in Jerusalem about these things. And in his appeal, he reminded the church leaders how God had already worked in the past in sending his gospel out to the Gentiles, a reference to what God did in sending Peter, not Peter, Peter's his little brother, little brother Peter. (laughs) Anyways. Sent him to Cornelius, Peter. Try to say that ten times fast. You're like, yeah, I can. It's normal speech. Um, so to Cornelius and uh, shared the gospel with all those who had assembled at his home, all of them being Gentiles. How God saved these Gentiles when they were still uncircumcised. How God testified approvingly of this by giving them his Holy Spirit in their uncircumcised state, just as he did to the Jews in their circumcised state back in Acts chapter 2. Peter reminding them that God made no distinctions between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he proved this by purifying the Gentiles' hearts, Peter said, by faith. Not by keeping the law, but by faith. By faith in Christ alone. Peter then followed that up by asking the church leaders why they were testing God by putting a 
a yoke on the neck of the Gentile disciples, speaking of the burden of the law or trying to be justified by the law, a yoke that he said neither us nor our forefathers could ever bear. And this was a needed reality check for these Jewish leaders. If if trying to be justified by keeping the law was a, a, a heavy burden that they could never bear, why were they trying to put that same unbearable burden now on the Gentiles? Which led Peter to then conclude his appeal confidently with the belief that he and the rest of the Jewish believers would be saved in the same manner as the Gentiles who had believed in Jesus. Peter's conclusion drove the final nail home that the Gentiles were not going to be saved by becoming like the Jews, adopting their customs and traditions and the keeping of Mosaic law along with their faith in Jesus Christ, but that the Jews actually would be saved by following the example of the Gentiles by simply putting their faith in Jesus alone by grace alone, receiving and resting in the justification, being made right in the eyes of God, which only comes by believing in Jesus Christ. Peter made this amazing appeal to the council and most likely at that point sits back down and this is where we pick up in verse 12 of our text. Acts 15, verse 12, it says, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So Peter finishes his appeal, and what followed was silence by all the other church leaders who were present. I I believe what Peter spoke really got them thinking that there was some serious prayerfulness on their part of, of taking these things to the Lord as they were confronted with the truth of what Peter spoke. They couldn't deny that God had done these things already with the Gentiles. And this testimony was important because Paul and Barnabas, along with Peter, were all men who had personal interactions with Gentiles. Luke doesn't record the fullness of the account of their testimony here because he just spent the last couple chapters describing their journeys but these men were sent by the holy spirit to gentiles with the gospel they got to see god open the door of faith to the gentiles they got to see god work by his grace in the lives of gentiles and they got to witness firsthand what god did through his simple gospel message of grace in saving Gentiles who were in an uncircumcised, non-Mosaic law-keeping state. Now, this reminded me of something that Luke recorded in Acts chapter 14 that no doubt Paul and Barnabas would have shared here. We see in Acts 14, verse 3, it says, Therefore they stayed there a long time in the city of Iconium it's speaking about, Speaking boldly in the Lord, it was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So in the city of Iconium, in spite of unbelieving Jews, stirring up some of the, some of the Gentiles in that city and poisoning their minds against Paul and Barnabas, we find this report of what God was doing in that predominantly Gentile city. He was 
bearing witness to the word of his grace. He was showing his approval and pleasure that these Gentiles were being saved by the simple gospel of grace, all centered upon what Jesus had done and had provided by then granting signs and wonders. These are just speaking of various types of miracles to be done by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. God worked through them among the Gentiles with these miracles and wonders so that the Gentiles and Paul and Barnabas and the rest of the church leaders in Jerusalem would know that the word of grace, the the gospel message of Jesus, that Jesus died and that he was buried and that three days later he rose from the dead, was enough to save these Gentiles. That what God was desiring from them was not faith in Jesus plus something else, but that he simply desired to save them if they repent and put their faith in Christ alone. In that place of them simply believing in Jesus Christ, while being uncircumcised and not keeping the law of Moses, God had worked powerfully and miraculously among them. And this is what Paul and Barnabas focused on as they, as they testified of what God did to this council of church leaders. But let's continue on in this account because in verses 13 through 21, we're now going to find James's insight and conclusion. But let's begin by reading verses 13 through 17. Verse 13, it says, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. There was silence after Peter spoke, as they began to hear from Paul and Barnabas, and now again we see those present becoming silent after these two men finished testifying about what God had done through them among the Gentiles, no doubt taking all of that in. These things now being added to what Peter had shared to make a solid case against those who were saying that the Gentile believers had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. But in that time of silence, we now see someone else begin to address the council, a man named James, no doubt the same James, who Peter in Acts chapter 12, after being broken out of prison by an angel sent by God, had had wanted to send a report to of what God had done for him. This happened after Peter went that night and found and told the gathered believers who had been praying for him, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. Now, some years earlier, we saw in Acts chapter 12 that the apostle James, the brother of John, known as the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, that James was actually killed by King Herod Agrippa I. 
So it wasn't that James. And we actually haven't seen the other apostle named James, who was the son of Alphaeus, mentioned since Acts chapter 1, verse 13. So who is this James that's now speaking and seems to have a, a very prominent leadership role within this council of leaders from the church in Jerusalem? This James is actually one of the half-brothers of Jesus Christ, who, during his earthly ministry, before his resurrection, did not believe in him, but turned in faith to Jesus, most likely during one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, as Paul writes about later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. We know this is that James because Paul in Galatians chapter 1 talked about going to the church in Jerusalem and seeing and meeting with James, who he specifically said was the Lord's brother. Then mentioned James again in Galatians 2, along with Peter and John, as men, he says, who seemed to be pillars in the Jerusalem church. James may have been an unbeliever during Jesus's earthly ministry. He may not have been an, an apostle in the fullest sense, as we see like Peter and John here. But this James became a pillar in the church. And by some church tradition, they even say that James was the, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. This James is the one who, now that things are silent again, begins to address the rest of the council in verse 13 by asking his brethren to listen to him. And having their attention, he affirms what Simon Peter had shared, how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And just as an added note here, as we're studying through the book of Acts, this is actually the last time in the book of Acts that we're going to find specific mention of Simon Peter. Never again through the rest of the book of Acts will we see Peter mentioned at all because the focus as Luke begins shortly to travel with Paul and Silas and the rest of the crew, the, the focus is going to be on what God through his spirit was doing through the apostle Paul's ministry to get the gospel out into the rest of the world. But as James begins to address the rest of the council, he, he references Simon's testimony about how God visited the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, saying that that visitation by God was to take out of the Gentiles a people for his name. And then noting in verse 15 that with that, the words of the prophets agree. Now, this is significant because the Jewish people always clung to this uh, promise from God that they were his chosen people. They were a special people for his name. And they have not stopped being a chosen people by God, even though many within the Jewish heritage are uh, not believers in the Messiah, in Jesus. God has not abandoned his plan for the nation of Israel, as, Rome, as Paul will talk about in Romans chapter 9 through 11. But this idea of being the people of God 
would be significant for the Gentiles. Because never before this had they been known in that sort of way. They were always outsiders. They were always sort of kept at arm's length. If they proselytized and became sort of Jewish, even then there was the court of the Gentiles. There was only, it was only so close that they could get as worshipers of Yahweh. And I love it that as Peter writes in his first letter, many years later, some 35 years after this, 30-ish years, that Peter in writing, he says that we, speaking collectively to Jews and Gentiles and, and, and directed more and more in that moment to Gentiles, we were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. Man, what does that mean for you and me? Because in our culture, it means something to be included. It means something to be seen and valued and to be heard, to be loved, to be cared about, to not be treated as an outsider. That's, that's huge in our day. And in some ways, it's, it's taken to an extreme in a, in, a, in a wrong way. Yet we desire that. There's a craving inside of us to be desired, to be wanted, to be loved. And for there to be this reality in Scripture that it's not just for the nation of Israel, this called out people who God set his love upon, not because they were so great, but because he's great. But that God would turn to the rest of us as Gentiles, and maybe some of you are Jews this morning, praise God for that. But no matter what our ethnicity, no matter our background, that we could once be not a people and, and, and by the blood of Jesus Christ be called the people of God. Wanted, valued, and loved. That he would call out of darkness and into his marvelous light of people who are completely undeserving of the grace and salvation of Jesus Christ. And yet that's what makes our God so great. We're undeserving and yet he did it anyways. We did everything possible actually to, to cause God to want to send us away from himself. And yet he, in his love and grace, pursued after each of us. And for some of us this morning, he may still be pursuing after you. This was a big deal. James is, is lifting this up out of Peter's testimony. He's called out among the Gentiles a people for his name. God is doing something new. He's doing something powerful. He's doing something significant. It should cause, cause all of us to praise his holy name. To fall on our faces in worship. Because this is the God who loves us, who's near to us. Peter, I'm sorry, James says that the words of the prophets agree. 
The words of the Old Testament prophets agreed with what Peter declared God had already been doing in visiting the Gentiles and taking out of them a people for his name. James was making sure the council knew here in this moment that it wasn't just the experiences of Peter and Paul and Barnabas that validated the Gentiles, that, that Gentiles were saved by grace apart from keeping of the law. But that scripture agreed too, and this was an extremely important move by James here. The council needed more than man's experiences to go off of. These things had, it, had to be rooted in scripture. See, if it was all experience, but there was no biblical foundation to any of it, I think James in this moment would have said, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer, or, or we're going to have to search a little more deeply in the scriptures to make sure that these things are so. You know, oftentimes in our day, even within the church at large, we find that people put their experiences on the same level as scripture and so you get movements and and you get uh, teachings that come out in books that are written that have no real biblical foundation but because there's an experience that's stated to be by the spirit it's then stood upon as though it's on the same level as Scripture is. And it's become very dangerous. When we elevate our experience to the same level as scriptural truth, all kinds of weird things happen. I mean, because you can have a feeling about something, but... You know what? Maybe it's because you ate some bad food last night. That doesn't mean it's the Spirit of God. You can feel like God said something that's contradictory to Scripture, but the Holy Spirit of God, please know this, the Holy Spirit of God will never contradict what He's already spoken through the written Word of God He inspired. If he inspired it, why would he then contradict himself 2,000 years later and tell you that doing all kinds of wacky stuff is okay? doesn't work that way. That's man putting man's word on the same level as God's word. You and I don't have the authority of God. This is the authority of God. We need to stand upon it today. Hold fast to it. Scripture will always trump experience. That doesn't mean that experiences don't happen. God will meet you. He'll move you emotionally even. But we have to be mindful to always filter those three things through the word of God, which is the authority. While the church, the, the called out assembly of Jews and Gentiles made one by the blood of Jesus was a, a mystery, as Paul would write about later. A mystery in Old Testament times that was revealed in New Testament times. 
God's plan to save Gentiles declared in Old Testament times through his prophets was not a mystery, but was clearly stated in places like Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, and Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. But James gives an example of that agreement of the prophets by, by quoting the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But something really important for us to consider in this quotation from Amos, Amos we, we have to understand James doesn't say here that what was happening with the Gentiles at that time was a fulfillment of this prophecy of Amos that he quotes because Amos is actually speaking prophetically about what, about what will happen during the millennial reign of Christ, but that it's just an example of how the Old Testament prophets agreed with what they were seeing at that time with the Gentiles being saved by grace apart from the works of the law. I like how uh, Bible commentator William MacDonald explained what we're seeing here with James's quotation of the prophet Amos. He said this, he said, notice that he did not say that the calling out of the Gentiles was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos, but rather that it agreed with the words of the prophets. This, uh, the assembly should not think it is a strange thing that God should visit the Gentiles with salvation because this had been clearly predicted in the Old Testament. God had foretold that Gentiles would be blessed as such, as Gentiles, and not as believing Jews. The quotation from Amos looks forward to the millennium when Christ will sit upon the throne of David and when the Gentiles will seek after the Lord. James did not intimate that this prophecy was being fulfilled at the time he spoke. Rather, he said that the salvation of Gentiles, which was then taking place, was in harmony or agreement with what Amos said would take later. He further goes on to say, James's argument was this. First, God would visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. This is what was then happening and is still happening. Converted Gentiles were included in the church with converted Jews. What was then happening on a small scale, the salvation of the Gentiles, would later happen on a larger scale. Christ would return, restore Israel nationally, and save all the Gentiles who would be called by his name. James looked on contemporary events as God's first visitation of the Gentiles. He felt this first visitation was in perfect harmony with what Amos predicted, the future visitation of the Gentiles when Christ returns as king. And he says the two events agree, though they are not identical. See, while James wasn't saying that the prophecy of Amos, he quotes, is a fulfillment of what they were seeing presently with the Gentiles, clearly as he already stated from what Peter shared, that God was taking out of the Gentiles a people for his name, the things they were seeing presently, as the last line of James's quote from Amos says, was a reminder that the Lord was the one doing all these things. The Lord was doing it. 
And if God was the one doing all these things, not just validated because of their experiences, but more importantly agreed with by the Old Testament prophets, who were they to oppose what God was doing presently in this church age with the Gentiles? Making them a people for his name by his grace, just like he had already been doing with the Jews. Well, look at how James follows that up in verse 18. James follows that quote of Amos by saying, Known to God from eternity are all his works. Basically, since the plan of God to save the Gentiles and and make them part of his people was something he spoke about through the Old Testament prophets and was being seen right then in the present, in the early years of the church, and since there is still a future fulfillment of these things spoken of by the prophets that will happen with the Gentiles in the millennial reign, then James is saying in this verse that our eternal God clearly has eternal knowledge. That he's planned all of these things from eternity past with perfect accuracy and that God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. If he knows it from eternity past, if he spoke these things and they're coming to pass, then God doesn't make mistakes. And his knowledge is complete. You know, isn't it funny how we can sometimes find ourselves with our finite understanding thinking that we know better than God? You ever done that? You ever found yourself in that place? It's not that you're telling God, I know better than you, God. But when you say, God, I don't like this. God, I wouldn't have done it like this. What we're saying is, God, I think I know better than you. I think you made a mistake. Guys, why do we find it hard at times to trust the Lord? What is it in us that At times we just, we want to take the reins and just make things happen for ourselves and not wait upon the Lord, to not do things in accordance with his word. Why? What is it? Well, it could be a number of things, but somewhere in there is we just forget or maybe we don't know how perfect and great and powerful and all-knowing our God is. I, I start to doubt his goodness when I forget the things that he stated in his word, when I start to forget how he's shown up time and time again in my life, in your life. What is it that causes us To think that God's understanding is not perfect. That his knowledge is not complete. 
that his plan for you and me is not for our good. You know what it is sometimes? is our experience becomes the gauge of God's goodness. I'm not seeing God's goodness in all of my circumstances, and so my circumstances begin to be what tells me and dictates to me how I'm going to see God. I'm not seeing your goodness here, God, so you must not be good. I'm not seeing how you're faithful right now, God, so you must not really be faithful. And yet our experiences lie to us. Our emotions lie to us. Our situations are not the right gauge to tell us who our God is. Known from God, known to God from eternity are all his works. It's not just a declaration of our God's eternal knowledge. It is a declaration that our God who knows all is a God who is working. He's working. Think about your circumstance right now. The things that you don't know how are going to work out. God knows and he's working. Think about those things in your life that you've not been able to move past. Things that you're still struggling with that you want to find victory over. God knows and he's working. We can trust him. We can rest in him. We can submit to his plan and his ways and his will because he knows what's best and he has our good and his glory in mind. I love that declaration of James in verse 18. Well, let's read our last bit of verses here in verses 19 through 22. James follows that up by saying, therefore, in verse 19, I judge, I'm making a determination here, guys, that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses, he says, has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. After James finished agreeing with Peter and giving a a scriptural example of how the prophets agreed with what they were seeing in their day, with the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ apart from being circumcised or by keeping the law in order to be saved, James gave his judgment, which it's obvious from verse 22 that the rest of the church leaders and the whole church agreed 
with James's determination here, a, a judgment that they should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who were turning to God. See, what troubled the souls of the disciples, as we already saw a couple weeks ago, and we'll see in verse 24, was the message of the false brethren who came saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. It was a commandment that the church leaders did not give. It would have troubled the Gentiles who were turning to God to tell them that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. But James's judgment was that that was not the right decision to make. And, and it was not the decision the Holy Spirit was directing them to make, as we'll see next week in verse 28. Understand, James's judgment wasn't about troubling them in a, you know what, they're going to be super discouraged by this sort of way but was a judgment that held utmost doctrinal importance as the troubling would have kept them and every other person, Jew or Gentile, from ever being saved because it would have distorted the gospel message and where people would have put their trust in Jesus alone or in Jesus plus the works of the law to be justified. A different decision here would have kept mankind from ever being able to truly turn to God as the unbearable yoke of bondage of the law would have been placed on all of our necks and kept us from a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But praise God that James and the other church leaders were humble before the Lord. They were submitted to his word. They were sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to be able to make the right doctrinal judgment here regarding the Gentiles who were turning to God, a decision that really we are still benefiting from eternally today. James came to the conclusion that to tell the Gentiles they had to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses would have troubled them and kept them from turning to God. And he also concluded in verse 20 that they should write a letter to the Gentiles to tell them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. And clearly, from what he goes on to say in verse 21, this had to do with the preaching of the law of Moses that happened in synagogues. It had to do with the Jewish influence that these gentiles were going to be living out their christianity around now at first reading it might seem like james just replaced circumcision and the keeping of the law with some other things that they now had to keep in order to be saved but what we find here in what james says that they should write to the gentiles and tell them to abstain from it is not a list of things being added to their faith in Jesus Christ. These things were not prerequisites in order to be saved, but these were concessions for them to make because of their fellowship with other believing Jews and also their witness to non-believing Jews. Three of these 
four things that James states here had to do with what these Gentiles ate. And because in the early church and in that culture, eating together was a big deal, still a big deal to us. That's why we are probably the most notorious as Christians for potlucks. This would have been something that would have severely damaged that fellowship that the Gentiles were to have with their Jewish brethren in Christ. We're going to look at these things a little, a little bit more in detail next week when we see the full contents of this letter that they send to the Gentile believers. But I want to give one last quote by pastor and Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe in closing. He said, The church concluded that Jews and Gentiles are all sinners before God and can be saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. There is one need... And there is but one gospel to meet that need. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. God has today but one program. He is calling out a people for his name. Israel is set aside but not cast away. Romans 11, verse 1 and following. And when God's program for the church is completed, he will begin to fulfill his kingdom promises to the Jews. But all doctrine must lead to duty, he says. James emphasized this in his own epistle, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And so did Paul in his letters. It is not enough for us simply to accept a biblical truth. We must apply it personally in everyday life. And I love what he said here at the end. Church problems are not solved by passing resolutions but by practicing the revelations that God gives us from his word. These are powerful and needed words for us today. I'm going to have you guys turn with me one last place, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we prepare to take communion together and we're going to see a lot more of this in our account next week but first corinthians chapter 11 paul actually writing to a predominantly gentile church who needed a lot of correction in a lot of different areas wrote a encouraging but also correcting word on taking the lord's supper which we also call communion he said this in first corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 26 he said for i received from the lord that which i also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And I told you earlier to grab your communion elements, and I didn't grab my own. So poo-poo on me for doing that. But 
thinking about this situation here, what these false brethren were bringing in would have brought a lot of division into the church. What could have come, come away from this was, well, we have the Jew, Jewish Christians and we have the Gentile Christians. And the Gentile Christians would have been looked down upon by the Jewish Christians who would have looked at them and said, well, they're, they're not really saved because they're not doing the things that we're doing. Even though those things were not actually things that Jesus had told them that they must do. It wasn't that keeping the law was bad. It's not like what was in the law was bad. It's good to not murder. It's good to not commit adultery. These are good things. And when we do them, they're sinful things. But the keeping of the law was not how any of us ever were going to find a righteous standing in the sight of God. It was only going to be through what Jesus did through his death and burial and resurrection. Our faith in him. And, and now you and I, we come from different backgrounds, different cultures. We're, we're from different ethnicities. Some of you have come from different countries even. We speak different languages. And yet because of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done, you and I get to share a oneness in Jesus Christ, a fellowship that's been provided, not because you and I are perfect, because that's not going to happen this side of heaven, but because Jesus is perfect and his blood perfectly has provided atonement for our sin. And you and I today get to be family together. Family. You and I collectively get to be a called out people. A people for his name. That's a big deal. This morning we are going to take the communion elements and do these things in remembrance of the Lord. But listen, before we do that, if you've come here this morning and you don't first have a, a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and I say personal because you're not saved, none of us are saved because our grandparents were saved. We're not saved because... You know, we went to church. We're saved because we individually and personally came to a place where we saw that we're sinners. I'm a sinner. And, and you know what? Most people, even that don't believe in the Lord, don't need to be told that they're a sinner to know that they're a sinner. We're sinners. We have missed the mark. And the only way to be saved in the eyes of God is to, is to repent. And I know it's gone to bad rap in these days, but it's the most beautiful word that has been given to us because in repentance, we're turning from the things that we've held on to that are killing us, that are separating us from God, that will separate us from all, for all eternity. 
and, and we're turning from those things and we're, we're turning fully to Jesus Christ in faith and surrender saying, Jesus, I need you. Save me. Forgive me. Give me eternal life. Jesus, be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my King. Be my God. No one can do that for you, and you can't do that for someone else. But this morning, we can make that decision personally. And maybe for some today, it's not even a a first-time decision. Maybe for you, it's actually, you've been wandering from the Lord. And the Lord's been pursuing after you in that place of wandering. And this morning, he's going, you need to come back. You're finding yourself in a place of bondage, but I already purchased your freedom. Turn back. Whether it's for the first time or maybe you are needing to recommit for the hundredth time. Jesus this morning is calling out to you. His arms are open to you. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to purify your heart. He wants to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. To give you value. To give your life real worth. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're so thankful that you've called out a people for your name. And Lord, this morning, I pray, God, for each and every one of us, Lord. Maybe for some today, God, what was needed to be taken away was a reminder to trust you. A reminder that we can trust you, Lord, that you're Knowledge is infinite, Lord. Your care is perfect. Lord, your love is unconditional. Lord, maybe for some this morning, God, there's a, there's a bit of a c- correction that's needed, Lord, some course correction, as maybe some have elevated their experiences to an unhealthy place, an unbiblical place. God, would we be firmly rooted in your word? God, would we find ourselves on solid ground this morning? Lord, I I pray, God, if, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that, Lord, even now you'd be speaking to them. And And while everybody's in this posture of of prayer, if that is you this morning, if you've come not having a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you've never made that decision for yourself. You've never come to Jesus in that place of surrender and said, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. If that's you this morning, I'd love to pray for you. Would you stand where you're at, if that's anybody at all? I know it's a bold move. I know it, it, it's a little intimidating. 
Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father and all of the angels. If that's anybody at all this morning, you need your sins forgiven. Maybe today it's not a first-time decision. Maybe it's, it's a recommitment. Maybe there have been things you've allowed into your life. Maybe you've wandered from the Lord, and this morning you're needing to return. I want you to stand if that's you. To say, Jesus, I come back. Anybody at all? Yeah, awesome. Anyone at all else? I just encourage you as you've stood, just, you know, just pray along with me. Just say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me. Lord, I repent of my sin. I turn back to you once again. Jesus, thank you for pursuing after me. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Lord, would you restore that fellowship that's been broken because of my sin? And would you make me right in the eyes of the Father once again? Jesus, I surrender fully to you this morning. I just encourage you as you've done that, just the, the Lord wants to meet you where you're at. He wants to, wants to forgive and cleanse once again. Lord, I pray for my sister who stood. Lord, I pray, God, that you would be working. God, that you would fill her with your spirit. Lord, you give her power, Lord, to live a victorious life in Christ. Lord, keep her close to you. Lord, help her to abide in, in Jesus each day. Lord, would you strengthen her and encourage her today? God, we thank you for the decision that she made to stand. Lord, for any others this morning, God, who may be in their hearts, maybe it was people online making that decision, Lord, meet them where they're at, God. Would you bless them? Lord, let them know how pleased you are. Lord, as we... Uh, prepare to end in these songs and take communion. God, just, uh, again, uh, just be working, Lord, in our midst, God. We, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.